Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Nicole Perlroth on This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. First, wanted to let you know about BooksOnPod.com. It's where you can go to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And for the latest on this show, check us out on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at BooksOnPod. This is John O. Brennan, former director of the Central Intelligence Agency and author of Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. And I cannot confirm or deny that I am talking to Trey Elling on Books on Pod. Hello, readers. Nicole Pearl Roth is an award-winning cybersecurity and digital espionage journalist for the New York Times, where her work has been optioned for both film and television. And she's the author of the new book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. Nicole, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm great, Nicole. And I got to tell you, two things jumped out at me when I received this book. One is it's one of the coolest author photos I've ever seen and so fitting for the subject matter (laughs) that you're writing about. And two, the title punches you straight in the face. How did you come to this title? Well, it came to me in the shower (laughs) about 10 years ago. I had been seeing a lot of my work in the footnotes of books about cybersecurity or cyber war. And I knew that I knew more about some of the incidents and attacks over the last 10 years than almost anyone with the exception of the people who were on the ground, because I often would parachute in and interview everyone who was involved in the forensics investigations. And so it was sort of frustrating to just continually see my work paraphrased in various forms in other people's books. And so I gave myself a pep talk and said, I think I have to do a book. And I bought this like waterproof notepad and put it in my shower. And I just felt like the shower is the only time these days where you're not attached to a device and you actually have time to think for a minute these days. And so I just, started thinking about if I'm going to write a book, well, what would I call it? What would some of the chapters be? And this is how they tell me the world ends just came to me one day in the shower and I wrote it down and somehow it stuck. How did you end up covering cybersecurity for the New York Times? Is this something that you always had planned as you were uh, making your way through school at Princeton and elsewhere? (laughs) I wish I could say yes. No, I got I even got into journalism late in the game. I had never worked for a school paper. I had never really considered journalism. I worked in all sorts of jobs that my friends from Princeton took after we graduated. I was a consultant for a while. I was a paralegal for a while. I worked in marketing at Coach, the handbag company. Hmm. And every job was just more boring and mind-numbing to me than the last. And so I ended up taking a class at NYU at night, which is kind of funny because I did go to Princeton (laughs) and the idea that I would sort of end up just taking like a nighttime continuing studies education class after my day job, I think is not what my parents had in mind um, (laughs) when they helped pay for my Princeton tuition. But the professor for that class was a business journalist from the New York Post. And he said, you know, I think you have something here with your writing And I think you should think about journalism and I think you should think about business journalism because some, you know, it's not a lot of people want to get into journalism to be a business journalist, but I think you might enjoy it. And so I ended up doing some freelancing, which is a whole different story. I decided to go to journalism school because I didn't have prior experience. I took a unpaid and then paid internship at Forbes magazine I started covering venture capital. This was really when venture capital was in the doldrums, but was suddenly kind of getting new life with early investments in private companies like Facebook in those days. And suddenly these VCs were becoming their own celebrities. And I was covering them and cover profiles at Forbes magazine and the New York Times caught notice. And the tech editor, Damon Darlin, gave me a call and said, you know, we're looking at you for this job. 
but I'm not sure you're going to want it. And I said, well, you're in the New York Times. I'll take whatever it is. How bad could it be? And he said, it's cybersecurity. <laughs> and I told him I've never done any work in cybersecurity. I have actively gone out of my way to avoid reading about cybersecurity. Um, you got to be crazy. But you know, it would be an honor to be considered for any job at the New York Times. And I'm happy to go through the interview process. But during those interviews... I was very candid with the editors of the New York Times that I knew nothing about cybersecurity. And I actually knew a few cybersecurity journalists who were terrific. And I suggested that they go call those people and hire them. And what the editor said to me was, no, 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 you don't understand. We've actually talked to a lot of other cybersecurity reporters in this industry, and we had no idea what they were talking about. So we can't hire them because our readers who are in their 80s on the Upper East Side definitely won't know what they're talking about. So you're hired. And so began my illustrious entry to the New York Times. When did you realize what you were covering had such enormous potential ramifications? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think when the New York Times hired me, they were trying to beef up their business coverage around cybersecurity. And so I was hired to work for the San Francisco Bureau, which is basically mostly technology journalists that work under the business desk. So they were thinking of it more as a role where I would cover cybersecurity companies like Symantec or McAfee, that kind of thing. Mm. They weren't really thinking that I'd be out there covering cyber warfare. But what happened very quickly <laughs> was that the New York Times was hacked by China, by Chinese hackers, state-backed hackers. And the managing editor at the time, John Geddes, called up my editor who had hired me, Damon Darlin, at the time and said, who should be looking at this? And Damon said, oh, well, Nicole, you know, she covers cybersecurity. So I went and I embedded basically with our security team for a period of several months because we didn't want to write about this thing until we were confident that we had kicked them out of our networks. And I watched as the guy we jokingly called the Beijing summer intern would roll into our network at 9.30 a.m. <laughs> Beijing time and roll out at 4 p.m. Beijing time every day and <laughs> crawl across our network. And that was really my first experience understanding that private organizations and journalists really we're now in this brave new world where we had to protect ourselves now from a nation state cyber attack is essentially what I was seeing over the course of those months. You know, Google had come out a couple of years earlier and announced that they were essentially pulling out of China because they had been hacked by China. But for the most part, there were a lot of companies in those days that were getting hacked and their intellectual property was getting hacked by Chinese hackers, but no one wanted to talk about it. Everyone was sort of burying the evidence in the sand. And the New York Times made this brave decision that we were going to write about our attack. And so I wrote about it, and that just sent me off on this totally other course in my career where for pretty much the next two years, all I did was cover Chinese cyber espionage. But the other thing was that in writing about that attack, and I really credit the New York Times for allowing me to do that, we sort of busted open this world of Chinese intellectual property theft. And suddenly we made it okay for other victims to step forward and say, we also were hacked by these groups. And the Obama administration sort of seized the moment to start naming and shaming some of the Chinese hacking groups that were responsible and on and on and on. And from that point forward, the rate at which we were seeing new nation states come into the game and attack American companies and our allies and private organizations and journalists just kept increasing over the next few years. And once I thought I had totally wrapped my hands around Chinese cyber espionage, then there came Snowden and I was dragged into, you know, a tiny skiff of Snowden documents. And I covered that for a while. And then came some of the Iranian attacks on American banks and casinos and Saudi Aramco. And it's just has not stopped. So 
I don't think I really processed what was happening until I sat down to do finish this book. You know, the book I realized I've just been just treading water essentially for the last decade since I joined the Times. And the book was really an opportunity to pull my head up and take a longer look at the horizon and realize just what a troubling predicament the United States and the world is really in these days. No doubt about that. And speaking of, because this subject is probably going to come up more than once over the next 45 minutes or so, what exactly are zero days and what about them were you searching for starting in around 2013 Mm -hmm. or so? Yeah, so a zero day, and this really was the most technical part of the book, but a zero day is a hole in software. Think of it as an error in the code, just some mistake someone made when they were designing software. So if I'm a hacker and I find a hole in, say, your iPhone's iOS mobile software, and Apple doesn't know about it and no one has called out this flaw before, that's called a zero day. It just means it's a secret vulnerability that the manufacturer, in this case Apple, doesn't know about. And if I'm a hacker and I know how to write a program, a computer program or some code to exploit that flaw, that's called a zero day exploit. And if you can craft a really good zero day exploit for Apple's iOS mobile software, you can really get the keys to the kingdom. You could track someone's location. You could read their text messages. You can access their contacts, their calendar appointments, their camera, their microphone without them knowing. And basically, you can access every single thing that a spy agency uh, or cyber criminal could possibly want on a person. And so I had heard murmurings and there'd been a little coverage about the zero day market which was a market sponsored by governments and largely spy agencies that would purchase zero day exploits from hackers and i just thought this was fascinating i couldn't wrap my head around it i thought wait a minute if i am a hacker and i find this flaw in the code I can sell it to a government or, you know, a government agency, even in the United States, and they'll use it for their signals intelligence, their counterintelligence operations. But doesn't that mean I can't tell Apple about it? And doesn't that mean we're leaving a giant hole in Apple software? And isn't there a moral hazard baked into that? And at what point do we decide to patch that vulnerability to tell Apple about it, get it patched? At what point do we hold on to it? You know, how do we make sure a hacker isn't double dealing and selling knowledge of that flaw and the code to exploit it to multiple buyers? Do we buy these zero day exploits from hackers just in the United States or our five eyes intelligence partners? Or do we buy them from hackers in Romania? You know, how do we trust these people? And the other thing was, I could just see that Um, First of all, more and more nation states and cyber criminal groups were knocking on the U.S. digital doors. So if we left a hole in iOS software open and we didn't get it patched so we could spy on our adversaries and terrorists around the world, the chances that someone would eventually find that hole and use it back on us were increasing. And then the other thing was three decades ago, the world was using different technology. China was using Huawei software. We were not using Huawei. Three decades later, Huawei is still sort of a glaring exception, but for the most part, we're all using the same technology. We're all using the same iPhones and Android phones, and whether you know it or not, you use Microsoft Windows in your everyday life. You might not have a PC, but it might be baked into the power grid or your wastewater treatment plant. Hmm. So if we were leaving open a hole in Windows so we could spy on, you know, a suspected Russian spy at the Russian embassy in Ukraine, we were leaving a hole in Windows open in our power grid, in Americans' communications, in our federal government agency communication channels. So I was just fascinated by this basic question of, wait a minute, aren't we sacrificing cybersecurity in the name of national security? And what does that even look like? And who makes these decisions? And what do these deals look like? And, you know, are there like contracts? 
just the whole thing was just fascinating to me. Well, and, it's, and that became my quest for the book. And it's inevitable that this technology ultimately does get weaponized. And sure enough, that happens with the U.S., with Israel's help, and they use it on a sort of WMD scale. And they did so on Iran's nuclear program. The plan, called Olympic Games, started formulating in 2007 and was ultimately implemented in 2009. And it actually did work very well at destroying centrifuges used to create explosive isotopes within Iran. But then something happened that those responsible considered to be a worst-case scenario— what was that worst-case scenario, and how far-reaching and long-lasting was this undesirable result? Yeah, it's a great question. The security industry called it Stuxnet. Before we knew the classified code name was Olympic Games, the security industry called it Stuxnet. But I use them sort of interchangeably in the book. And what it was was really a counter-proliferation effort by the U.S. and Israel in those days, it was fascinating to just go back to this period in U.S. history, which feels strange to even call it history because it wasn't that long ago. But <laughs> the Israelis were pressuring the Bush administration. This was Bush's second term to hand over our bunker buster bombs. That is what they felt they needed to truly decimate the Natanz nuclear facility in Iran. The facility is built underground, under concrete, and they just didn't have the bombs they thought they needed to take it out. So they were pressuring the Bush administration when I went and even interviewed hackers at the NSA. They compared it to a PSYOP, a psychological operation. They said they never experienced anything like the pressure that they were getting from the Israelis to turn over bombs. But every simulation that the Pentagon was doing at the time about what would happen if the U.S. handed over these weapons showed that even if we just sort of looked the other way and didn't participate in the ultimate bombing of Natanz, but even if we just enabled it somehow, we would get dragged into a war with Iran. And at that point, we were already in Iraq. We were already in Afghanistan. Body counts of American soldiers coming back in caskets from Iraq that year in 2006 was reaching an all-time high, and Bush really had very little interest in getting into a third war in the Middle East. So he said, get me a third option, and that third option became Olympic Games. But when you go and look at the forensics around Olympic Games, it's just brilliant. You know, it's very clear that the coders in that design of that code had lawyers standing over their shoulders to make sure that there was as little collateral damage as possible. The code would infect the rotors that spun these centrifuges, these uranium centrifuges at Natanz. But before they did, they would wait two weeks just to make sure they were in the exact configuration of centrifuges that were present at Natanz and to not do anything on any system that didn't match that exact configuration. And then it was genius. Then it would go in and spin up the centrifuges at higher speeds, and then it would sit back for 27 days and go back in and slow them down, and then it would sit back for 27 days. And what it was doing was de destroying these centrifuges, destroying the uranium, but doing it in a way that looked like a natural accident. It was really designed extremely carefully. But like you said, worst case scenario happened. It got out. We don't know how it got out. There are some theories out there, but no one's ever confirmed it. But what happened was the code escaped, fled the coop, got out of Natanz, and it zigzagged around the world. I think first it hit a lot of networks in Asia, but eventually it boomeranged back to the United States. I, I remember it infected networks at Chevron. And, you know, it didn't do anything because, like I said, it had been so carefully designed to only work on Natanz. But what it did was it just started appearing on these networks and network administrators and cybersecurity investigators started dissecting the code. And within a short amount of time, they realized what they were looking at was a cyber weapon of destruction, that this was code. And they ultimately found out what the target was at Natanz. And they figured out that this was code designed to jump from Windows software into industrial software and work on these centrifuges. And what that did 
was open up every other country's eyes on earth to the potential of zero days and code to not just conduct espionage operations and surveillance, but to exact destruction. And the year it was discovered was 2010 during the Obama administration's first term. And since then, so the last 10 years, I've been covering cybersecurity at New York Times. I, I just joined the Times in 2010. We've just watched as every other nation state on earth, with the exception of maybe Antarctica, has tried to acquire similar offensive cyber capabilities. And some have found they can do it on their own with their own trained engineers, but some have to buy their way into these capabilities. And this market for zero days and cyber weaponry has really crept up to meet their demand. And no company was on the receiving end of more bad PR regarding hackers and zero-day bugs at the start of the 2010s than Microsoft. Personally speaking, I remember making the switch to Apple around that time in part to feel safer about what was on my computer. Now realize after reading your book that it was a false sense of digital security. But when and how did Microsoft really regain control of this security? Well, you know, Microsoft is such an interesting story because... It's a well-known legend, but really what happened was they had cornered the PC market when Bill Gates was still running the place, but they had basically lagged on the internet. Netscape kind of came out of nowhere. They underestimated the fact that the internet would take off the way it did. And so they spent a lot of those years trying to play catch up. And they started rolling out really crappy code and web servers onto the market with very little regard for security. They were focused on speed and capturing as much market share as they could from Netscape. It was funny to go back to that period because I found this email where Bill Gates said had sent an email to someone saying, how much do we have to pay you to screw Netscape, which just seems so unlike the Bill Gates philanthropist <laughs> humanitarian we, we hear about today. But in those days, he was extremely competitive and they were behind and really sacrificed security in the name of capturing market share. And so hackers would find all sorts of ways to use Microsoft software and servers to probe all sorts of interesting organizations around the world like NASA and Pentagon and all sorts of things. And so there were actually a number of pretty high profile computer worms in those days there was like the I love you virus and the Melissa virus and um, NIMDA, I think was the name of one. And these were computer worms that basically some of them just turned your computer into a brick, just made your computer utterly useless. And these weren't just hitting individual PC users. They were hitting Microsoft's customers at Ford which saw, I think, its email shut down completely at one point and it hit the White House. And so government officials started calling up Microsoft and Bill Gates and saying, listen, unless you start taking security more seriously, we will take our business elsewhere. This is not going to be good for you. And so partly that, partly just the fact that the attacks were getting so common and so frequent that Bill Gates wrote this memo. I think it was 2002. It was, it's called the um, Open Trustworthy Computing Initiative is what it was called. And he said, from now on, we realize that security needs to be a priority, and we plan on making it the cornerstone of our strategy at Microsoft. And of course, everyone laughed it off as PR in the beginning, especially the hackers, but it was true. He ended up reorganizing Microsoft around security. They put security engineers on every product team. They made sure to bring in sort of security expertise at the beginning of the coding process rather than just having them vet things when their code was already in the hands of millions of people. You know, they really made some serious organizational changes and they set up a process where hackers could call at Microsoft and tell them about a zero day in their code, which was a big sea change because for years Microsoft had just essentially ignored hackers or threatened them with lawsuits, or in some cases, executives compared them to terrorists. You know, there was no love lost between Microsoft and the hacking community. But after that memo, 
things really did change. And so the price of a zero day, a window zero day went from pennies because there was just so many around the turn of the century to, I think today, you know, it might be a million dollars for a really good zero day exploit on the zero day market. If a government wants a way into Microsoft windows for whatever reason, So that's that. But, you know, even then, Microsoft continues to pop up in these nation state attacks. The Stuxnet or Olympic Games attack used zero day exploits for Windows. We just saw Microsoft used in this attack by Chinese hackers on systems in the United States on Microsoft Exchange email services. We saw Microsoft hacked by the Russian SVR intelligence agency, which apparently viewed some of its source code. And the reason is, it's not that Microsoft has crappy security, you know, they have poured a lot of energy and resources into their security. It's just that it is the most widely used available software in the world. And as long as that is the case, it will continue to be the most targeted software in the world. And a lot of people actually think that in some ways, it might be more secure than Apple's products. It's just that Apple's market share is still far below, at least on PCs, still far below Windows. So hackers have yet to have a reason to sort of target Apple's software in the same way. But that's steadily changing with the iPhone. Now the iPhone is just so ubiquitous. In late 2012, you began getting anonymous phone calls from people within the Department of Homeland Security worried that someone was mapping out the U.S. power grid, that someone turned out to be Russian hackers. Why did they suddenly disappear from the U.S. grid in the summer of 2014? And what did and does all of that mean in the grand scheme of things? Started getting calls from DHS, from analysts who were saying, not only are we hearing reports of Russian hackers targeting energy companies, but there's really no one at DHS that has serious cyber skills or a serious cyber resume. So it was sort of this dual freakout that we were getting targeted in some of our most critical infrastructure, and there was sort of no one minding the shop. And so when I first started getting the calls, that was about 2012. Now, they never really fully disappeared, is the truth. In 2014, 2015, we caught the SVR, which is actually the intelligence agency that's been credited with the major solar winds attack that we're unwinding now on American federal agencies. We caught them hacking the White House and the State Department. And there was a lot of press around that at the time, and less press about Russian attacks on the energy sector. And I think that was because, I mean, we covered it in New York Times, but I think it was because we didn't really know what they were doing there between 2012 and 2014. You know, there was so much intellectual property theft and so much of Russia's economy is dependent on oil and energy markets that I think there was this assumption in the cybersecurity community that this was just more of the same more intellectual property theft. But what happened to completely change our perspective on that was that in 2015, one of the Russian groups we had caught probing and poking around our own energy systems attacked Ukraine with a cyber attack at the end of 2015 that actually shut off the power to a large swath of Western Ukraine. And then they did it again a year later in 2016. And when they did that, the reaction inside the Obama administration was, oh, no, you know, we have grossly underestimated this adversary. They're not just in our systems looking for the price of gas or looking to steal fracking technology. They are laying the groundwork here potentially for a future attack on our power systems. And since then... And we have only seen that escalate. The guy that you named Jimmy Sabian was one of the first people to buy zero day bugs from hackers for U.S. intel agencies in the late 1990s. You met with him in 2015, which was big for a couple of reasons. One, you'd had an impossible time finding people from the world willing to discuss it. And also, some of what he told you was really significant. What was the most profound thing that you learned from Jimmy that further fueled you and your assignment? 
Yeah. And I actually had to just make up the name Jimmy Sabian because that was the only reason (laughs) he would talk to me and be so open the way he was. So the whole thing was fascinating. I mean, what he told me was like, he basically was reading me a spy thriller as we sat there eating enchiladas that day (laughs) at this restaurant in Boston. He basically told me all these questions I had and the way my imagination had run on what the zero day market was, you know, this like secret market where governments or spies meet up with hackers in dark alleys and pay them hundreds of thousands of dollars for a zero day exploit while they swear them to secrecy. Like the reality he described to me that day wasn't that far off. (laughs) In fact, in some ways it was more colorful. He said that they would send middlemen. They they worked with this one Israeli middleman who they would send him to Eastern Europe with giant duffel bags of cash. Okay. They would send him over with like a million dollars in cash. And this guy would go to Eastern Europe and he would meet with hackers and he would ask them for a way into the software that they needed to, you know, probe the Russian embassy in Kiev or some diplomats in Jalalabad, you know, they would find out what software these targets were using. And then they would send this guy over to Eastern Europe with a giant duffel bag of cash to find a zero day exploit, essentially to get into that software, to find a flaw in that software. And the reason they were going to Eastern Europe were a couple of reasons. One, in Eastern Europe, there was the Soviet legacy still of a very advanced science, technology, mass education. But after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there just weren't as many job prospects there. So a lot of people had turned to hacking and cybercrime as a means of making money. And they also used the software there that was the software that the Pentagon and intelligence agencies wanted to target for their spy operations. And so they had a little bit of advantage in that they were more familiar with the software that the U.S. wanted to target. So Jimmy's team would send this middleman over there with this duffel bag of cash. He'd find 10 flaws in software that they needed to drop some of the U.S. espionage tools. He would have them demonstrate for him, you know, how they were able to exploit this software. He'd bring it back to Jimmy Sabian's factory around the Beltway. He would help them understand the flaw And then they would develop the code to exploit it. And then they would sell that code to other defense contractors or directly to U.S. government agencies. He said, I think 80 percent went to the Pentagon and the rest went to law enforcement agencies like the FBI, et cetera. And then the other thing that was crazy was just how many government agencies would approach him for the same zero day. And from a bottom line perspective, that was good business. You know, you sell the same product once, twice, seven times over to seven disparate U.S. government agencies, some of which I had never even heard of when he was describing this to me, like the Missile Defense Agency. In those days, especially after 9-11, the NSA was really the most advanced technologically in the game in terms of employing the nation's top engineers and cryptographers to find zero days develop tools to spy on adversaries and collect signals intelligence. But there is this other long list of intelligence agencies in U.S. government that don't have the talent ranks of the NSA that knew that unless they developed these skills or acquired them, they were going to start losing their budgets to the National Security Agency. And so They might not have the talent in-house that the NSA had, but they could acquire these capabilities from shops like Jimmy Sabian. So what Jimmy told me was he would sell these to a number of agencies, but at a certain point as an American, he started just feeling sick about the taxpayer waste that was here, you know, that so many different agencies are paying a million dollars for the same exact thing. So he said at one point he just called up a bunch of the representatives or put them on the same thread and say, hey, you know, I'm not supposed to do this, but I think you guys have a lot to talk about and should go to lunch. <laughs> um, and, you know, just just the fact that this whole thing was so undercover 
And really, it was being done with duffel bags of cash and you know, cloak and dagger meetings in Eastern Europe. I mean, at one point, I asked him, who's the youngest a hacker was that would sell you guys these zero-day exploits? And he said, there was a 16-year-old kid in Israel who was just churning them out for his team. And so, what? You know, a 16-year-old kid is making like a million dollars selling these zero days to a guy who's going to bring it over and sell it back to the Pentagon? Like... The whole thing was just really the closest thing I've ever seen to the truth really is stranger than fiction. Yeah, it really is a story that's straight out of a really good Amazon Prime show. And adding to that allure is a visit that you received out of the blue in mid-2016 from a reliable source from the past who had some info for you. He literally had you take pictures and print a number of documents before destroying all digital evidence of what you had just done. And it provided you with a ton of info on a company called the NSO Group. How did they revolutionize cyber info gathering with a tool called Pegasus? Yeah, so this was a weird one. I had covered a lot of these spyware shops, okay? Shops that were popping up predominantly in Europe, like Hacking Team, another one called Gamma Group, that were advertising ways to break into iPhones in particular, especially as we were all moving everything in our thoughts and lives and banking passwords over to our iPhones. So they advertised mobile spyware. And I started covering some of the abuse of these products by governments. Like they kept claiming that they only sold these tools to human rights respecting governments and that these tools would only be used in the course of criminal investigations and to track terrorists. But they kept popping up on the phones of journalists and dissidents. And I kept covering this for the Times. And there were a couple of of security researchers at Citizen Lab who just kept unearthing this hacking team spyware on the phones of Saudi dissidents, Emirati activists, journalists in Italy. The list just kept getting longer and longer. But I had never heard of NSO Group. And NSO Group was an Israeli firm. The two founders weren't actually former intelligence guys, but they bought the technology from a guy who was a former Israeli intelligence hacker. And what they sold was not so different from hacking team, except it was clearly more advanced and more stealthy. And so one day a source showed up at my door, you know, made a small talk for an hour or so, and then opened up his computer screen and said, take pictures and then delete these from your phone, the cloud and your printer. And what they were was contracts and email correspondence documenting NSO Group's business and some of its clients. And among the list of clients were the United Arab Emirates, which I had covered in a number of situations abusing hacking team software to spy on activists and dissidents. Mexico was on the list. They were apparently one of NSO's biggest customers. Finland, I mean, Finland was in negotiations with NSO Group to buy its mobile spyware, which just struck me as just crazy on its face because you don't really think of Finland <laughs> as a country you know, that would need spyware. But what that showed me was I was just incredibly naive. Every government on earth has its own reasons for wanting to acquire these tools. And then the other thing was in these documents were basically marketing brochures that described that one capability NSO had that I'd never heard of, which was, you know, in most cases when hacking team hacked your phone, you would get some suspicious SMS text message that said, hey, you know, click on this link and that's how they would get in your phone. But what NSO claimed to have, and I'd never heard this, was a zero click capability. That is, they could get in your phone without you doing anything. And so they were charging much higher prices to government agencies for that capability. We're talking about five times the price that I think the hacking team was selling its mobile spyware for. And so I said, I will keep tabs on this. I'll look into this Israeli firm. And I really couldn't find much on the internet about them. And I didn't want to write about them because I learned that when I did cover hacking team, every time I covered it in the New York Times, 
Later, they were actually hacked themselves. And digging through the correspondence, I saw that every time I covered them, it didn't stop governments from acquiring hacking team. It was just an advertisement to any government that wasn't already using <laughs> their tools <laughs> to acquire them. And so every time I wrote about them, even if it was extremely critical and highlighting some of the human rights abuses, it just sent more business their way. So I didn't want to make the same mistake with NSO group. And I said, okay, the minute I find a case of abuse, I will disclose everything I just got from this source and everything I'll find in my research. And it didn't take that long. It was only, I think, a matter of a couple of months before I got a call from some researchers in San Francisco at Lookout, which is a mobile security firm and Citizen Lab. And they said, guess what? We just found a new spyware by a firm called NSO Group on that same dissident in the UAE that you covered a year ago. And it's using zero days in Apple. I think it was like four zero days in Apple's iOS software. And we're going to blow the lid on it. And so when that happened, I published everything I knew. And once that happened, I was everyone's kind of first call for those who were suspicious that they had NSO spyware product, which is called Pegasus on their phone. And when I would get those calls, and this really never happens because as a security journalist, you get a lot of crazy phone calls, but mm. most of the people who called <laughs> who were paranoid that they might have NSO's Pegasus spyware on their phone turned out they did. Oh. And in a lot of cases, these were not terrorists or cyber criminals or drug cartels. These were average everyday citizens. And so what I was exposing, what I was learning was the fact that there is no oversight over the use of these tools. You know, once you sell them to even a country like Mexico, that we don't think of in the same light that we think of even Saudi Arabia, maybe, or Sudan, I was finding that someone in Mexican government agencies was using these tools to spy on nutritionists. I mean, why would they spy on nutritionists? Well, I learned because these nutritionists wanted a soda tax passed in Mexico. <laughs> so clearly someone in government was getting kickbacks from the soda industry or something. You know, it was so clear that these tools were so ripe for abuse and no one was really looking at how they could be abused or doing anything about it. Nicole, whenever I think of Argentina, my first thought goes to chimichurri. It is truly the underrated condiment on the planet. <laughs> but after reading Chapter 17, I will also now think of the impressive nature of Argentine hackers. What mm -hmm. was the most important insight that you learned from them when visiting this country to further pursue this story? Man, I mean, I had just kept hearing that Argentina was sort of fertile ground for zero-day exploit development, which just seemed so weird. You know, I'd always wanted to go to Buenos Aires. I'd never been there. So I thought, okay, I'll go, and I'll, I'll check out whether this is true. And so I went down during this hacking conference called Echo Party. And, yeah, it was true. I mean, I, everyone I met with basically explained to me that Argentina – has a whole culture around hacking because they have all these export controls and Amazon didn't ship there when I was there. And this was, I think, 2015, 2016. Amazon still didn't ship there. If you wanted to buy an iPhone, you really had to buy it in the US and smuggle it in. Otherwise, it was going to cost you an astronomical sum. So to access all of these games and apps and things that we took for granted here in the United States, Argentina teenagers really needed to find a way to hack to get the same access to these fun toys. And what that created was really this natural talent pool of hackers. And so they called themselves, when I met with them, they said, we're the India of exploit development. You know, we develop exploits. We're really good at this. And then the other thing was they were having this insane inflation. I think it's gotten even worse. But when you go to Argentina, you have to go to these like secret illicit cuevas to exchange cash because the currency conversion is just so insane and everyone there wants dollars. So you have to go basically change your money at these tiny little cueva shops. I forget what they're called. They're blue shops or something. Anyway, the benefit of the exploit market for an Argentine hacker is they can sell a zero day exploit to a government and get paid in dollars. They could get paid under the table and they don't have to report it for taxes. And in Argentina, they can live really large 
with the amount of money that they would get from a single exploit sale. So you could sell a zero-day exploit in iOS or Windows, and you could live in a mansion just outside Buenos Aires. You could buy a sick apartment in Palermo, which is this hip neighborhood there. And so they were really living large. (laughs) And there were a lot of men at the conference who were clearly there to purchase zero-day exploits from these hackers to bring back to their respective government agencies. And there was also this sort of new breed of young Argentine hacker that just didn't really care about how these tools would end up getting used. They were more interested in the profit of it all. And the other thing I learned when I was in Argentina was that their whole calculus there is flipped. Like I always wanted to know what is the moral calculation that hackers make when they sell a zero-day exploit? Who will they sell it to and who will they not sell it to? And there were many hackers who told me they would only sell these to the U.S. and Five Eyes, the five English-speaking nations that form our closest intelligence relationships. And they might sell it to a European ally, that kind of thing. So when I was in Argentina, I asked some of the more senior members of the hacking community down there, who will this younger breed of Argentine hacker sell these zero-day exploits to? And I phrased the question in a really stupid way at one point. I said, you know, will they only sell it to good Western governments? <laughs> and they laughed in my face and they basically said, Nicole, <laughs> you need to change your perspective because the last time we checked, the country that bombed another country into oblivion wasn't China or Iran. And in fact, down here, we don't necessarily think of the United States as a good Western government because they helped facilitate our dirty wars decades ago that saw the torture and murder of a lot of young Argentine men that were still missing. And so if they're going to go by some kind of moral calculus, they would prefer to sell their zero-day exploits to a country in Africa or United Arab Emirates or even Iran, maybe, than the United States. And that was a real eye-opener. That's when I realized, wow, Jimmy Sabian's era might have been the first to sort of start buying zero-day exploits and selling them to government agencies, but the U.S. has totally lost control of this market, and this is now happening in alleyways in Buenos Aires, and we have no visibility into where these tools are going and who they're coming from. Well, and in 2019, you met with Admiral Michael Rogers, who was the former NSA director during part of this time over the previous decade, where so much of this is going down. And your chat with him is sadly analogous of our government's inability to hold itself accountable for any of this. How did that conversation go? You know, I was meeting with him at RSA, which is a big security conference in San Francisco. And we were there to talk about a startup he joined. This seems to be the big common career choice these days as people step out of the NSA and they either start their own security company and consult back with government agencies or with the private sector. And that's what he was doing. But I barely recognized him, actually. He always wore his military garb. He had his medals. He was a very clean cut guy when he was director of the NSA. But when I met him in this hotel room at the RSA conference, he had a beard. He was sort of wearing a grandpa sweater. But the conversation was very uncomfortable. Because at that point, what had happened, and I never anticipated this happening when I set out to do a book on the zero-day market, what had just happened the previous year, I think one of the last years he was in office, was the NSA's own stockpile of zero-day exploits was hacked. Someone, we have no idea who they are, called the shadow brokers, appeared on Twitter one day and claimed to have hacked the NSA. And lo and behold, over a period of several months between 2016 and 2017, they started dribbling out the NSA's hacking tools, including some of their best-kept zero-day exploits um, in really widely used systems like Windows. And the tools got dumped. A month later, North Korea picked up the NSA's zero-day exploits and used them in an attack called WannaCry, which is basically a global ransomware attack that was so bad, it hit British hospitals and it kept hospitals from accepting new patients. Fortunately, they were sloppy and made some mistakes. And so the attack was neutralized much more quickly than it would have otherwise been. But then a month later, Russia picked up the same hacked NSA tools and bolted them on to an attack they aimed at Ukraine, 
which didn't just hit Ukraine, it hit any company that did any business in Ukraine or even had a single employee working remotely from Ukraine. So using the NSA's own stolen weaponry, Russia basically launched this attack that we call not Pecha, which I admit is a terrible name, but that hit Pfizer, you know, boomeranged around the world. It hit Tasmania chocolate factories. It hit Pfizer. It hit Merck. It actually froze Merck's vaccine production lines that year. They had to tap into the CDC's emergency supplies of vaccines that year. It hit FedEx. I mean, it cost these companies more than $400 million each. It was an insane attack. It was the most costly attack, cyber attack in world history. And so when I met with Admiral Rogers, I asked about this. I said, what were you thinking the day that you learned the NSA's tools had been picked up by Russia and used back on American companies? And I was dying to know the answer to this question. And it's in some ways, it's the question I wanted to see answered over the course of the entire research period for this book. You know, what culpability would the U.S. have if some of its own tools got out or the holes that it left open were used by our adversaries. And I was shocked by his response. His first response was, my first reaction was, our lawyers would never have let us get away with that. That was his first reaction. (laughs) Um, And then when I probed a little more, I said, wait a minute, do you lose any sleep over those attacks? And he said, I sleep just fine. And then when I asked it a third way, he said, you know, Nicole, if Toyota makes a pickup truck and someone else comes along and they bolt a bomb onto the pickup truck and then they drive the pickup truck, the Toyota pickup truck, through a crowd of people and detonate it and kill hundreds of people, is that Toyota's fault? And I just felt like that analogy said everything about how the U.S. government really doesn't see themselves having any responsibility or accountability for the fact that its own tool sets were used by our adversaries back against us. They were taking this tack of, we didn't pull off that attack and we're just going to ignore the fact that, that it used our own weapons, you know? And it was just very stunning, I would say, to hear that out of his mouth. Nicole, there is a phone call that you received that I think is the most foreboding example of this book's ominous title. What was the call that you got on July 4th, 2017, that started with the voice on the other end saying to you, they're fucking in? Yeah, so on the July 4th holiday, my family and I were driving out into the Rockies, and I got the phone call that you just mentioned from a source warning me that they were in. And what he meant was that this top secret alert had just gone out from DHS to electric utility providers across the United States, warning them of a Russian attack. And buried in the alert at the bottom was a reference to some of the code the attackers had used. And what DHS had left in there, and probably not on purpose, was a reference to Wolf Creek, which is a nuclear facility out in Kansas. And it was clear from the technical indicators that these Russian hackers had gotten into Wolf Creek's enterprise network, into the business network at this nuclear facility. And this was really the first time that we'd seen any kind of confirmation that not only were Russian hackers inside our electrical utilities, but they were actually gunning for our nuclear plants. And we have no evidence that they ended up getting into the operational systems at that nuclear plants. But by and large, a consensus emerged that they weren't in there to steal intellectual property. They were in there poking around to see just how far into these systems they could get. And, you know, fast forward where we are now with the solar winds attack, I just happened to get off an interview this morning with a CEO of a major utility company in the United States. And we don't think that utility companies were ultimately compromised in the solar winds attack or that they were the ultimate target, I should say. But it was clear that they used solar winds to get access to some of their networks and were definitely poking around, um, you know, seeing 
what else they could get into and where else they might be able to bury their code. And we don't really know where those efforts concluded. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And that is really the situation in cyber right now. We don't know how far into our critical infrastructure Russian hackers are, but we now know conclusively from that moment in 2017 until now that they are inside some systems and they are waiting for some geopolitical impetus to pull the trigger. And we have to now operate that way. We are using systems and software that's laden with holes and hackers. And we have to assume that you know, we're operating from a place of immense vulnerability. And you hear this play out in terms of political strategy over and over again when you interview officials in the intelligence community, the previous administration, and now the new Biden administration. Often you can hear this undercurrent of fear when they talk about how to respond to Russian attacks. They're coming very much from a place of, but what will Vladimir Putin do? You know, what will Russia do if we do this? And I think a large part of that is the fact that we are so vulnerable digitally. We know that Russian hackers are in our systems. You know, how do you come from a position of strength diplomatically when your enemy has essentially embedded itself in your power structure and in the business networks of your nuclear plants? You just can't, which is why ultimately the argument I make in this book is Offense alone is not going to get us out of this place. We really need to start deploying sophisticated defenses first just to get a sense of the situation, to find out just where in our networks we've been hacked, and then to get to a place of defense where we can root out these attacks in real time, and we're just nowhere near that today. All right. Two more questions, Nicole. And I want to preface this next one by saying it would not surprise me at all if you've gone the way of the Michael Caine character in Children of Men, living with your family in a solar powered farm in the woods, growing food, cannabis or anything else that is necessary to deal with all of this. But considering everything (laughs) that you know now after the countless conversations you've had on everything, what are your rules of using technology like cell phones, computers, tablets and the like? Mm-hmm. Well, I do use CBD to fall asleep at night. So there's that. <laughs> but, um, you know, my rule is, and this is really for everyone, is you have to think about what's the thing in your life that would really hurt pretty badly if someone stole it from you. And you need to protect that thing. And so for me, I would say the number one thing is I post baby photos. Okay. So I'm okay if someone is going to hack into my phone and find my baby photos. I'm not okay if they're going to get into my phone and steal information about my sources or out my sources. So I take my source protection really seriously. Mm. I use Signal, the encrypted messaging app, which is good in that you know it encrypts your messages and it really is considered sort of best of breed when it comes to encrypted messaging. But if someone's inside my phone, it won't matter because they'll be able to capture my keystrokes and that kind of thing. So I actually go to pretty extreme lengths to protect sensitive conversations. Like I have sources where before the pandemic, we would just meet up at the same place on the same day every month without fail. We wouldn't bring our devices. I would bring a pen and paper. We wouldn't drive there. We wouldn't take an Uber there. We'd either walk or get dropped off by someone else. And we just had a regular meeting and that's how we did business. And it was because I was scared that someone could track my location through my car's navigation system or through my phone. And all of those things are entirely possible, not just by governments, but by data marketing firms. And so those are sort of, I just go very old school when it comes to communicating with my sources. And then I just do the best I can with everything else in terms of using two-factor authentication, using a crazy long password for my email account and my bank account, using different passwords, using a password manager in some cases. All of those things, as boring and lame and as tired as we are of hearing them, can knock out about 80% of the cyber threats you face. You know, I don't click on links and attachments 
because I've just seen too many phishing campaigns used by nation state actors and cyber criminals. So it can be annoying. But I also just don't want to live my life like a tinfoil hat person. Mm -hmm. I had this story, I forget if I told it in the book, but when I was covering Chinese cyber espionage, I had this moment where I still hadn't published the story about the Chinese attack on the New York Times. I wasn't allowed to tell anyone at the New York Times what I was working on when I was doing that story. So I had all of this in my head and I felt like I was sort of carrying this burden and started getting paranoid. And I was in my 20s. I was living in an apartment alone in the city. And I remember one night my cable box started acting really weird and making really loud noises it had never made. And this was like a cable box in my bedroom attached to my television. And I convinced myself in the middle of the night that this was Chinese hackers inside my bedroom. (laughs) So I got up and I ripped the thing out of the wall and I said something like, not today, China, you know, something (laughs) ridiculous. And the next day in like that morning golden light, I saw that cable box ripped out of the wall sitting on my floor and just had to check myself and say, you know, Maybe there are hackers inside your systems right now, but is this really how you want to live your life up at night, worried that there are hackers in the wall? That is not a healthy way to live. And so from that moment on, I just decided I would do the best I can. I wouldn't be an idiot and I would go out of my way to protect my sources. And that's the best you can do because I can't expect I'm going to defend myself from the SVR. They're too good. (laughs) (laughs) And most of us are not targets for Russian intelligence agencies or Chinese state sponsored hackers. And so, you know, what you can do is just worry about your bank account information and make sure you use two factor authentication and a different password and you'll probably be okay. But these days it's so easy to get hacked and particularly public sector targets like hospitals, schools, courts, you know, they're all just getting hit with ransomware left and right. And a lot of it is just because they use this old outdated software. They don't bother to turn on multi-factor authentication or use smart passwords. And so if they did that, then they might not get hit so frequently. Well, as you point out also, America is more digitized than any other country on the planet, so we're more susceptible to serious attacks. But people can uh, read this book to find out more about that. My last question for you, I alluded to this earlier. This is a gripping story that you tell in this book, Nicole. Please tell me that the rights of this have been purchased by an Amazon, a Netflix, a major movie studio or something to turn this into either a really good movie or an even better television series. And if so, who plays you in that series? Okay, FX purchased it. Yes. And they purchased it from Tommy Schlamy, which is my favorite name in Hollywood. (laughs) Tommy was the showrunner for the early seasons of West Wing, early director, worked with Gosh, why am I blanking on his name? Who did West Wing and Social Network and everything? Aaron uh, Aaron Sorkin. Sorkin, yeah. Yeah. And more recently, he's he's directed a number of episodes of The Americans and Plot Against America is one he just did with HBO and House of Cards. He did some of those seasons. And so he's just great. He's just the best guy and he's such a mensch. And he had gotten a hold of my manuscript while I was still working on it. And he just got it. And he said, this is the first time I've seen these stories told through humans in a way that I could actually see it playing out on the screen. And so he optioned it. And then they got these awesome screenwriters who were behind this show called The Informant, which was originally with the BBC, but right now is on Amazon Prime which I watched and it's one of those shows you it's clear, you know that these guys are not going to bastardize your project or your writing and they're not going to turn it into some blockbuster or whatever. It was really nuanced and character driven and I just loved it. And I thought they'd be great for this book. So they are working on it right now. I think they're already through screenwriting for season one. And it's kind of a matter of figuring out when they can start filming with COVID And sadly, I don't think I'm going to be in it. I don't think anyone's playing me. I think they've sort of taken the journalist out of it. What? I know, I know. It's kind of like a looser adaptation. But everything they've told me 
about it, I actually think sounds even better. So don't worry. All right. Well, I'll give them a benefit of the doubt, but I'm going to watch that <laughs> series begrudgingly not getting to see some of these crazy phone calls that you get or what happens in Argentina when you go back to your hotel room. I mean, there's some legitimate yeah. stuff in there that could have been made to a great story, but I, I'm, I'm not in that side of the business. So I guess I'll let it be. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe it'll be like, you know, in the wire when in the last season or was it the second to last season where they go to the Baltimore Sun yeah. and David Simon gets to like take revenge on every e- editor he didn't like, uh, you know, um, maybe it'll be something like that where I'll, I'll pop up in a later season. But I'm just my, my main motivation is I hope they can get it out because it sounds like they're really thinking about it in creative ways and and it could be a really good a really good series. Well, that's great news. Congrats on that. And congratulations on this incredible book. It read like a technological thriller. I agree with that teacher at NYU night school and the New York times and everybody else who has been complimentary of your writing. You did such a good job of covering what can be very difficult material. You infused yourself at the right times. And overall, I I think this is going to end up being looked at as not only one of the best books of this year, of 2021, but one of the best books ever written on the subject of uh, cybersecurity, cyber technology, the cyber war, all of this shit that has has really created a big problem for all of us over the last couple of decades, and unfortunately probably will continue to do so going forward. Thank you so much, Trey. That's so kind. And you write a book, and it's just you and your Word document for seven years, and you've no idea what the reception's going to be. And especially as a journalist at the Times, you know, the words I and me get beaten out of you, and you learn how to write in the Times voice. So it felt like taking a big risk to even drop myself into the narrative at times. So I'm so happy that, you know, that made it more readable for you. And it's just wonderful to hear that. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Nicole. All right. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.